I'll admit I can't help but think of Oscar Wilde every time I hear that song. He lived a wild, wild life. And he lived on that mountaintop for a long time until he brought himself down. And we'll be talking about him over the next two weeks. The life of Oscar Wilde. Welcome to Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your host and storyteller. Let's begin with what Oscar was so famous for, anecdotes. This is one he told to George Bernard Shaw over dinner. There was once a priest who decided that he would live a more holy life as a hermit in the Libyan desert, so he took his cross and walked many leagues into the desert where he found a place he could survive and, as a hermit, devote his life entirely to a pure and holy existence. Demons couldn't resist attempting to distract this holy man from his holy contentment. They sought to conflict him with discontent. One made him think of fine foods and wine he was missing in the civilized world. One made him think of fascinating conversations he was missing at the monastery. Another asked him to think of the beautiful voices raised in song in the majestic churches of Europe. Nothing worked. They did not dent his resolve to the slightest degree. The devil came along, and upon this sight he must have said to himself, Amateurs, these demons are amateurs. He said to them, and I quote Wild exactly here, The devil whispered to the demons, What you're doing is too crude. Permit me one moment. And then the devil whispered to the holy man. He whispered in his ear. He said, Your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. A scowl of malignant jealousy crossed his face. That, said the devil, is the sort of thing I recommend. Wilde was one of the great diviners of the subtleties of human nature, and he used himself as a model, saying things as astute as, I can resist anything but temptation. Oscar Wilde was chosen in 2014 by the Oxford Dictionary as the most quotable person in the English language. He did hold perfectly to Shakespeare's guidance that brevity is the soul of wit, and it is that characteristic that makes him so widely quoted every day across the Internet. He seems to have a quotation for every occasion, even this one. More than 120 years after his death, we're still talking about him. He would be pleased because he said that there is only one thing worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. Ironically, Oscar Wilde died on Mark Twain's birthday, November 30th, 1900. The two had much in common, though they met only once and ever so briefly. They both wrote a satirical essays on the decay and the art of lying. Wilde complimented Twain for making American schoolboys eternally delightful. They met one time. And here's some trivia for you. They met at a German spa resort. They just shook hands and greeted each other ever so briefly, and that was it. But Twain's daughter, Clara, wrote in her diary that Oscar had a carnation as big as a baby sunflower on his coat and had on colored shoes. She was impressed, even a little awestruck by the moment. Interesting that children of celebrities are often more impressed by famous others rather than the icon living in their homes. The notion of celebrity was relatively new in the world at the end of the 19th century. Certainly, there were those who enjoyed celebrity status without understanding it, but there were a few public men and women who seemed to have an innate understanding of creating and nurturing a public persona. 
Mark Twain, as I mentioned before, was certainly one who cultivated a public image with great care and cunning. Teddy Roosevelt, too, understood how to usurp the power of the press. To his advantage, Oscar Wilde may have realized the secrets of media manipulation for profit at a far younger age than Twain or Roosevelt. Oscar was only 27 when he came to America on tour, but he was already a seasoned creature of the media. He realized that fame and ethos had a powerful alchemy. His early fame in England had been developed via steady publicity that was self-orchestrated. Every few days, his antics were covered in London tabloids, either for something he had done or something he had said. He had become so well-known for his well-knownness and so recognized as the leader of the aesthetic movement that the year before he left for America, even at that young age, Gilbert and Sullivan parodied him in their opera Patience. They depicted him carrying a single lily, lovingly and protectively through Piccadilly Circus, dressed in a velvet coat and knee pants. When asked if he had actually done such a thing, he said that it doesn't matter whether I did it or not. What matters is if you believe I did it. Already he was latching on to the notion that constructed fame was more powerful than achievement. Publicity equaled ethos. It equaled credibility. If one were not legitimate, how could one be famous, after all? Well, having managed an early mastery of the art of celebrity, he knew that when he toured America at age 27 to be successful in terms of money, he would need to maintain a constant presence in the newspapers. And just as he had done for several years in London, publicity was his greatest love. Upon his arrival at customs in New York, a customs agent couldn't believe that he had come all the way from England for a many months long stay in America and had nothing to declare at customs. And as he kept questioning Oscar about specifics, Wilde, in irritated desperation, said, I have nothing to declare except my genius. And this seemingly outrageous claim was published immediately in all the newspapers and tabloids, successfully launching him as a curiosity worthy of attention, which was his design. Were Wilde alive today, he would certainly have a blog, a Twitter following, and a steady stream of appearances on, you know, The Daily Show and Graham Norton. And likely, he would have his own show. You can be damn sure that there would be an OscarWilde.com. This is significant to note because his entire tour of America was designed to capitalize on the publicity given him by Gilbert and Sullivan's opera. And this worked beautifully because his tour of America made him famous in America and simultaneously shaped his subsequent fame back home. It was a win-win all around. In America, he lectured on the Renaissance, and upon his return to England, he lectured on the American West. Brilliant. His American tour helped him create a public image, a sustainable persona that became iconic, lasts to this day. Let's back up a little bit now, and let's focus on his early, early days. From time to time, I'm going to let Oscar tell his own story in this podcast, but I'm not going to try to do an Irish accent or a British accent. I have a great number of British listeners on this podcast, and I'm not going to insult them with my feeble attempt to 
to emulate that beautiful dialect. I would simply try to assume the delightful, arrogant attitude that Oscar often took on in his speaking, some of it real and some of it faux. And you can imagine the authentic accent for yourself. We think of Oscar as British, but he was absolutely Irish up until he was 19 or so. He once explained that he did not always have a British accent. He said, I was raised in Dublin, Ireland. I went to Oxford when I was 19, and the first thing I lost there was my Irish accent. He later said, I was christened Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wild, and as my fame has grown, I have been shedding names. Like the balloonist who sheds ballast to rise, I have shed names, and now I am merely Oscar Wilde, but soon I will lose one more name and become just Oscar, or perhaps the Wild. He said, when I was attending Trinity University in Dublin, my friends told me that I was not clever enough for Dublin and that I should go to Oxford. There was an opportunity to earn a scholarship by taking an exam in Greek and Latin, so I registered for the exam, and as I took it, I developed a winning strategy. I wrote my Greek essays in large print so that I could keep going up to the examiner's desk and ask for more paper. This impressed the examiner and demoralized the other boys. Well, I won the scholarship, and off to Oxford I went, and it was the greatest gift my father ever gave me, letting me go to Oxford. Little gray colleges enshrined in velvet lawns. My time in Oxford was the flower of my life. As you cross the little bridge across the Thames, you are struck by the intellectual light that seems to permeate the place. It's amusing that Oxford means cattle crossing, even though it represents the collection of the greatest minds in the world, and I suppose it still does. In a recent visit, I was, I was pleased to see that the freshmen were still reading Aristotle and Plato, though not, unfortunately, in the original Greek, as we did in my day. It was at Oxford that I studied many languages. I strengthened my Greek and Latin. I learned some Italian and German and became fluent in French. I love French. I love cursing in French. It is such a delicate language. To curse in French is like beating your donkey with a silk whip. I was asked there to join the rowing team, and I was perfect for it, six foot four and tall with strong arms. I was on the rowing team for about ten days, Yet I tired of it quickly, of having upperclassmen yell at me all the time, saying, Sit up straight, man. Sit up straight, Oscar. Over and over I heard the command, Back straight, man. Frustrated, I yelled back. I don't think the Greeks were concerned with posture when they attacked the Persians at Salamis. Well, I was asked to leave the boat. It was just as well I didn't see any benefit in getting up at seven every morning and touring the Thames backwards. Indeed, I never much cared for outdoor sports except for dominoes. Now I have been known to absolutely exhaust myself playing dominoes outside French cafes. I prefer sports that allow you to drink wine while you play them. Generally, I detest exercise. I prefer vegetating. I would rather talk than walk. Talking is good exercise. Not talking is quite tiring, I have found. At Oxford, I was the principal and the creator of the aesthetic movement, a study of all things beautiful, both natural and man-made. 
My dorm room was adorned with lilies and sunflowers set up in vases of blue china. All are ideal examples of flawless designs. You no doubt have heard me quoted as saying that I have always tried to live a life worthy of my blue china. It is true, I have. The sunflower and the lily both are perfectly made in color and symmetry. Jesus himself mentioned the precious nature of the lilies of the field. So the aesthetic movement was about the adulation of beauty and the emulation of natural beauty in art. The secret of life is in art. Well, I left Oxford on break and returned to Dublin to find that Flory Balcom, the love of my life, the woman I had always believed I would marry, was engaged to another. I was devastated. She was my first real love. I was heartbroken, and I wrote her a letter asking if she would please return the little gold crucifix I had once given her. It is a letter full of angst, of lost love, and demonstrates that a broken heart feels that it is the first ever to be broken. Its pain is unique. I wrote, My dear Flory, as I shall be going back to England probably for good in a few days, I should like to bring with me the little gold crucifix I gave you one Christmas morning long ago. I need hardly say that I would not ask it from you if it was anything you valued, but... Worthless though the trinket may be to you, to me, it serves as a memory of two sweet years, the sweetest of all the years of my youth, and I should like to have it always with me. I cannot leave Ireland without sending you my best wishes, that you be happy. Whatever happens, I at least cannot be indifferent to your welfare. The currents of our lives have flowed too long beside one another for that. We stand apart now, but the little cross will serve to remind me of the bygone days, and though we shall never meet again after I leave Ireland, still, still I will always remember you at prayer. Adieu, and God bless you, Oscar. Well, it's interesting to note that she was marrying Bram Stoker, the creator of Dracula, you remember. So the little crucifix might have been an inconvenience in that uh, marriage. <laughs> Oscar continues. After my time in Oxford, I settled in London and began to write plays and to try my hand at art criticism. Hence, I became friends with Jimmy Whistler, and we dominated the social sections of the London papers for some time. You would see little notices such as this. Wilde and Whistler were seen sitting in the park yesterday talking about each other as usual. And when I read that to Jimmy, he said, no, this is wrong. I remember distinctly that we were talking about me. I said, well, that is not exactly true, James. We were talking about you, but I was thinking of myself. The papers report on every little thing that I did or said. And you see, journalism is such a bore. Our problem in England is that our journalism is unreadable and our literature is not read. Well, as I waited for one of my plays to be produced, one that was blocked for political reasons, I decided to do a lecture tour of America. So I set sail for across the Atlantic and arrived in 10 days at New York City. Before I arrived, I was already in the papers for having said during the crossing that I was not impressed with the Atlantic Ocean. It was so quiet and tame. And then one paper reversed the headline and said, Atlantic Ocean unimpressed with wild. I liked America better the further west I went. 
Once you got past the Mississippi, the real America began. In the eastern quadrant, you get too much of the echo of England. Unfortunately, I had to do most of my traveling by train, and that is no way to see a country whizzing by everything at 50 miles an hour. Horseback is best. You can stop and see the birds and the flowers.